Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy, joined by my co-host, my raincoated lover and puny brother, Steve Walsh. Hello. And our special guest this week, uh, Mancunian, Mosophile journalist, Rob Pollard. Hi. Takes life at five times average speed. I like that. Like it's a normal thing to do. Uh, <clears throat> you asked if uh, Jack was going to sing, and Jack was quite sort of reticent, going, maybe, maybe not. I was like 12 seconds in? Yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah. he's going to sing. My Morris is no, not where it should be at the moment, to be honest. The 2nd of June is the reissue, the 20th anniversary of Vauxhall and I, the classic Morrissey record. And to celebrate, we've got Rob down in London, and we're going through the places in South London Morrissey mentions and has been to Morrissey, South London. It's another great example of an episode where people sort of say to us, "How do you? How many episodes don't know?" You go over a hundred. Like how? Because we'll do an episode about Morrissey in South London. We're yeah. prepared to go that deep. You know, take the, the premise, stretch it as far as it can go, all the way out to Manchester. Yeah. We're currently in Battersea Park, where you're the one for me, fatty, who's shot. All over Battersea, some hope and some despair. Just had a vegetarian picnic. What did you think of? I enjoyed it. I thought it was, it was very, very kind of you to bring that along, and it was it was very enjoyable. Rob, before we get going, maybe uh, you could tell us about the time you met your hero Morrissey. Yeah, um, there'd been many near misses in the past, where kind of had been in areas where he had been, and had found out like later. And I'd got it into my head, because I was always convinced I was going to meet him, I just knew. And then I'd got to the stage where I was starting to really doubt that, you know. And I was sat at home one day, and uh, it was about two o'clock in the afternoon, I hadn't long been up. And I see on Twitter, I see on Twitter, somebody posted, Morrissey is at the Griffin in Bowdoin, which is like a really nice pub that I always used to go to when I was younger, lovely area of Bowdoin, near where his mum lives. So, you know, it all tallied, because I'm thinking he is home. He stays with his mum when he's home. He's in Bowdoin. Yeah, he's in Bowdoin. So never have I drove to Bowdoin as quickly as I did. I just got a bag, you know, one of those like those bags you had earlier, like the sort of cotton, cotton, cotton cotton type thing. Yeah, shoved like LPs, CDs, DVDs, (laughs) T-shirts into this bag, as many as I could fit. Got into my car and was there in sort of eight minutes flat. You know, it's like a fifteen-minute journey. I was there. And then I get into the Griffin and I see the guy who I know who had just tweeted it. I said, where is he? You know, I'm flustered. I was like, where is he? He said, oh, he's just left. So I'm like, oh, this is another example of me just missing him. So then I thought, well, there's another pub next door. I may as well try there before I go home dejected. So I go into the pub and he sat at the back with like sort of five burly um, bouncer type people, you know, and I just went over. And he signed a load of stuff and I went home. I mean, the actual meeting I had with him was catastrophic. It really was. It was just, it was awful. I Talk us through it. Well, I'd planned so many years. I'd gone through this where if I was to meet him, what I would say. Thanks for the music. Thanks for the words. You helped me with this. You you know, anything. Just something that's actually meaningful. You know, that actually means something to me. Must remember to thank him. <laughs> and I know it, I'd like, even like at the time he didn't have a record deal or anything, but he'd released sort of Scandinavia and a couple of these other tracks. Action is my middle name, which all sounded really good. Didn't say like, oh, you know, the new material sounds great, or what just nothing. This? this was like a couple of years ago. Um, about 18 months ago, two years, something like that. So I just said nothing of any value, sort of stood there quivering whilst he's signing. But luckily all the big guys at the table were all looking at him signing things, so they weren't looking at me looking flustered and shaking or whatever. 
And then at the end, I said, thank you very much, putting the stuff back in the bag. I know that halfway through, he says, do I have to sign everything? <laughs> so I said, no, no, not at all. Just sign what you want. And he looked at me, raised one eyebrow and said, whatever I want. As if to say, I don't want to sign any of it, you know. So I just said, OK. I said, make sure you sign that one and point to the Dallas DVD because that's my favourite. You know, I absolutely love it. And he said, this one. Yes, yeah, so we signed it. So at the end, I'm putting my stuff in the bag. I said, thank you very much. I said, by the way, would you like to be interviewed for the New Statesman? Um, and he just looked at me, laughed in my face, and said, not in a million years. <laughs> and I just remember thinking that was the most Morrissey response you could ever wish to get. So I just kind of said, oh, OK, you know, put this stuff in the bag and left. And um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll say it anyway. I got sort of halfway home and I had to pull over because I was just so overcome with emotion. It wasn't like, I wasn't like really happy. It wasn't really sad. There was nothing, I, don't, I couldn't explain it. I was just completely overcome. And I think that was when I realised just how much of a profound effect he's actually had on me and my life that day when I was, yeah, I just couldn't even drive home. You cried your eyes out? Well, I cried. I mean, not, didn't cry my eyes out. No, it was one of them where, you know, you're just sort of overcoming. Yeah. It's been like my wedding day. Yeah, yeah, it's like, not a specific emotion. It's just yeah, overwhelmed. I was, yeah, I was completely overwhelmed by the whole thing. And obviously I was really disappointed with how bad it had gone. You know, like, I just... Nothing of value came out of my mouth at all. Like, just nothing. The thing so, is, I always see it, though, as, like... You've got a chance you, to rectify that. And all, but also, he, you got well, to see yeah. him being Morrissey. You know, the whole idea of, like, whatever I want to sign and the raised eyebrow, that's a very Morrissey response. Oh, what I mean, it and, was. And, like, to get that one-on-one. Yeah. And, it, you know, when he's doing that, he's not being aggressive. It's quite arch. That's, you know, that's a nice... Oh, no, he was lovely. And, and he even, was like, really nice. If he's going to say no, rather than say no... I don't want someone to say, I don't want Morris to say no to me. I want him to say, not in a million years. Yeah. I want him to be <laughs> so joking so Whilst laughing in your face. Exactly, yeah, yeah that's the thing. I want Morris, it. If you're getting a no, get the... <laughs> <laughs> but get the biggest Morris. no possible, is it? Get the most Morrissey no you can get. Yeah, and I did. And then he apparently stayed in the pub all evening and did the quiz and everything else. And Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Of course he did. Yeah. Why wouldn't he? Yeah. What was his team called? <laughs> I had no idea. But I mean, his, t- his guys, I mean, one of his guys stepped in when I asked for the interview and said, you know, you're overstepping the mark. And that upset me as well because I didn't want to cause a scene yeah, at all. You didn't but mean to overstep the mark. No, I didn't. I didn't. No. And he kind of stepped in and made me feel like I'd done something really wrong. Well, he, that's his job. You haven't overstepped the mark. a very reasonable response for a journalist. He was, he was just nipping it in the bud, I think, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah. It? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that was it. That was the story. Yeah, but I've still got. I mean, I have got a T-shirt that's signed, a couple of CDs, and it was interesting though. He wouldn't sign any of this, or not wouldn't. He didn't sign the Smith stuff, just the Morrissey solo stuff, and he didn't sign. I have a couple of CDs that are signed by Johnny Marr already, and I took those along trying to sort of start to complete the collection, and he wouldn't sign those either. So he just signed anything that was Morrissey solo that nobody else had touched. And again, I thought that was just classic. Yeah, classic Morrissey. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we couldn't have picked a better day to end up in Bouncy Park, could we? No, it's gorgeous, isn't it? There's no despair, is there? It's all hope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although this guy, to be honest, looks like he's making a noose for his children. <laughs> it's Which is concerning. Hanging the toddler. <laughs> that's it, that's, that's grim. <laughs> so, Rob, you're eating grapes. Yeah. The idea was that I'll be feeding Steve strawberries uh, as we... Uh, as Type you, As you, you know, uh, saying, you know... I mean, I'm on my way there, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the other one for me, Fatty, it's not held in the best regard, is it? You often read throwaway remarks about how it's not very good, but I think it's great. I think it's a great pop song. Yeah, I think it's funny. 
I think it's the right length. I think he's got a great verse, chorus. You know, it's just that classic pop formula. But the lyrics, though. I think the lyrics are great. I really do. I think they're. Some people say they're insensitive or whatever, but I mean, come on. It's, <laughs> it's very. I think it's a light-hearted. Well, apparently, it's about uh, Chaz Smash from Madness. He wrote the song for this is a guy who's mates with from Madness, and it's a joke about him rather than it being about a, a fat woman. Right. So the okay. Not, so it's not the video's not sort of like portraying what the song's about. Yeah. Just one. Who yeah, told so you? Classic, where, classic. Did you, where did you get that interpretation the from? So it might not be true. It'll probably be Johnny Rogan who wrote an awful book about Morrissey and decided to come out with did all he wrote these. The Severed Alliance. He, yes, that was him. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it might be. I mean, he was friends with people in Madness. That's absolutely true. So maybe it was. I, I'd never heard that before. No. But I just read it about this, and he, I don't know. I'd rather, I'd rather the song was about a guy from Madness than him uh, singing about fat women. I think. I don't know. But calling somebody Some girls fatty, are bigger fat- than others, isn't it? That, that, yeah. I mean, I've heard him explain that particular track. He bas- he that says about sugs, No, yeah. <laughs> No, he says that that one was just him sort of noticing differences in the female form all the time. And that's where that lyric came from, that kind of, you know, they some know. girls are bigger it than really others. It really annoyed yeah. Marr, though, didn't yeah. it? Because, like, Johnny Marr loved, like, the guitar riff that he'd come up with and gave it to Morrissey. And apparently he was quite disgusted. I've read a thing, and again, might have been Severed Alliance, where he was like, yeah, I came up with this amazing guitar riff, gave it to Morrissey and came back as some girls are bigger than others. Yeah. Well, I think he's... An absolutely amazing song. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. I mean, the guitar, Johnny's right, the guitar in that is just absolutely classic Smith sound, yeah, isn't it? Best, isn't it? And the way they've got the fade in and out yeah. at the beginning yeah, as well. Yeah, I, 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 no, I like it. I love What's that. that about? I don't know, I, like I really it. like it. Sounds, it, it works. Yeah. If you want to buy Vauxhall and Light, reissued with uh, Live at the Theatre Royal on Drury Lane, 14 tracks. Go to stuffonhardcore.com, click the Amazon link, and we'll get a kickback, and we'll keep paying to feed Rob Pollard. Fair, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a marvellous record. We talked about it on the Vauxhall episode, mm. didn't we? Uh, episode 16. Go to stuffonhardcore.com mm. and uh, click the episode guide. I'll show 100-plus episodes on iTunes. But, and, of course, um, we talked about another episode. Yeah, episode 49, uh, the Lambeth Trilogy, uh, where we are the Lambeth Boys features prominently. Yeah, great film, man. So we don't want to dwell on that too much, do we, Steve? You know? No, no. It's been How many boys there were? 100. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, Vauxhall is widely regarded, isn't it, as like his finest solo piece. It's not my favourite, I must admit, but I can understand why it's so revered. It's just, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Like the product, Steve Lillywhite's production, I just think it's fantastic. And I think he, he put together a couple of new uh, musicians had come on board for that particular record and it just made for something really nice it was recorded at Hook End Manor which is like a r- big country house and I think everything just came together and worked really well in fact the double bass the guy who played double bass on the record is a guy called Johnny Bridgewood I think that's his name and uh, he gave the best quote about Vauxhall and I I think I've ever heard which was that you know whether it's the best or your favourite is is open to debate but it certainly occupies its own space was his quote and I just think that's so true like there's a thread with the others you know you can feel links from one to another or some sound like but with Vauxhall it does just have its own feel completely Um, and there are some absolutely magical moments on there I mean why don't you find out for yourself is just right up there listen to the record (laughs) it's right up there isn't it with 
Morrissey's very, very best solo songs, I think. And Speedway is probably my favorite. Speedway's f- phenomenal. Back in the set for his latest tour as well, which is yeah. exciting. Um, so, yeah, I think Vauxhall is just, yeah, it's what it's sort of like the mid career high point, isn't it? You know, and I'd um, take it out of all of his Smiths and solo work. You, it's your favourite, yeah. Album, yeah. Yeah, most people say that. Most people say that. I mean, my favourite's your Arsenal. Just love it. But I can understand why people would think it was uh, was Vauxhall. Well, they used it. Queen is dead. Yeah, it probably would be the Queen is dead still. Sorry. <laughs> you should hear me play piano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read, again, that um, Vauxhall has quite a funer- funereal tone because uh, Mick Ronson died in the lead-up to the album coming yeah. together. Yeah. Tim Broad and Nigel Thomas, who are names are not familiar to me, but apparently were people close to Morrissey. Yeah. He lost the three of them very well, close to you read the autobiography, everyone dies. Everyone dies. Yeah, His yeah. life has been punctuated by constant deaths of people around him. It is very bizarre, particularly producers. Right. I mean, even recently, the guy who produced um, You Are The yeah, Quarry... Yeah, the guy who did some Paul Ron producer. Yes. So Jerry Finn. Jerry Finn, yeah. He died. But the Mick Ronson one obviously affected him badly because he'd just produced Your Arsenal, which was um, hugely successful. He was a hero of Morrissey's before the production. Um, So, yeah, and then Tim Broad, I think he was a filmmaker, wasn't he? Did he do, I don't know, maybe interesting drug? He did something, you know, some of the visual work in Morrissey's career. So, yeah, it just seemed like there was a lot. And, And also, at the time, he was getting hassle in the press for the first time well, not the first time but he'd been going on for quite a while uh, he'd gone from being kind of the enemy's pinup boy to a guy that they were attacking um, so I think that the, 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 the mixture of this sadness and this death in his, these deaths in his life and also this sort of anger and resentment of the music press who are now pushing him to one side created this kind of feel for this record that just yeah he comes out and he's flexing a muscle and it's slightly angry at times and then it's beautifully soft at other times and it just seems to capture so many feelings and emotions it's just it is it's a truly marvellous piece of work did he feel at one point this was going to be his last album was he talking about not doing new albums after this yeah that rings a bell actually but I think he left everything that he could on you know on the pitch so to speak yeah I think he kind of gave it everything wondering whether it would be the last one but obviously he can't keep a man like that down I mean he's gone too big periods in his career where he's not had a record deal he's just come out of one and obviously before You Are The Quarry was released in 2004 he'd gone a long long time without a record deal then seven years without a deal you can't keep him down, I mean he toured the world in 2002 without a record deal, I mean does that happen to anybody else? So he had record companies asking for demo tapes. He was saying to him, "Go to a music shop and buy my albums. Well, yeah. Those are those are the demo tapes. That's what you'll get from me." I mean, he had you are the. I mean, uh, first of the gang to die, an Irish blood, English heart, considered two of his finest pieces of. So he had those in the canon for two or three years. Couldn't release them, and it's the same with this batch of tracks. Now he's had to release the new album that's coming out soon. Is going to be a normal LP. And then you can buy the enhanced version, which has got all these tracks that are just sort of kicking around because he's been left for so long without a record deal. He's, he's, he's had such a bizarre career, but because of how much he connects with people and his fervent fan base and how much he means to them, he's always kind of come back and offered something else at some stage. And I just find that fascinating, as fascinating as the actual output, you know, his career trajectory, if you will. The Lazy Sunbathers. Bit of track today, and I was listening to it on the bus. 
and like you know going through Clapham Common just full of people just lying there burning yeah <laughs> marvellous yeah it's such a great record isn't it yeah but we can't talk about that the whole the whole hour uh, we'll better move on to our next stop where is that we're going to pop into the British flag pub but first, we'll need to put up uh, You're the One For Me, Fatty Blue Plaque. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, Morrissey video filmed here in 1992. If you that got is so cool. There you go, that's Rob Pollard, that. That's unfiltered. At SLHC on Instagram, um, and you can see it on our facebook.com slash southlandhardcore. So, we're taking a walk down Batsy Park Road, and down Colvert Road, and we're at the British Flag Pub, which is... Ironically, it seems to be an Irish pub, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you think know, it's, you're the it's, it's Dolly Parton on now. Uh, I think it's yeah. just... Uh, it's a good times pub. I crack. think it, the music's generational rather than national in terms of choices. But that little kid who came out was Irish, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. No, I think there's definitely an well, Irish. You know, when you hear your Morrissey at the British flag pub, <laughs> yeah, hang on, here we go again. Some people are thinking, yeah. you know... British flag Irish pub, as it turns out. <laughs> Yeah, he came here with Chrissy Hines. The, the reason, the only reason we stopped here is because we we're on the way, and I did uh, Control F in the Morris's autobiography ebook, and I typed in Battersea, and he went here with Chrissy Hines one day. So I thought, it's why legitimate. not? Well, this is what we're doing. We're, yeah. you know, going to places out of London with a Morrissey connection. This was, uh, you know, a pub that he went for doing with Chrissy Hines. Good. Yeah. And also Jake Owen Waters also in presence is uh, first love yeah really, that's what you get from the book isn't it Rob um, yeah I think you do really a man with uh, Battersea tattooed onto his inner lip mm. yeah he said to Morrissey that's stuff on hardcore right there isn't it? that is yeah he said to Morrissey why'd you uh, why'd you put Battersea in that song and he was like because it rhymes with fatty <laughs> <laughs> but that's no, great I um, in the autobiography which I recommend to everyone at least two people have bought it using the South on Hardcore link one of them is my dad so I mean someone <laughs> else did as well um, he talks about meeting him like he's at a restaurant and he orders meat and Morrissey just gets up and walks out of the restaurant yeah. <laughs> but I won't I won't spoil it any further than that but you know it was quite thrilling to see a South Londoner wasn't it as uh, Morrissey's first love Steve Morrissey said that he was born and lived in the only detached house on Battersea High Street so does anyone fancy a wonder yeah, I reckon. Chuck it down. Yeah. Bang on the door, because his apparently his dad still lives there and he's a sculptor. <laughs> In that case, no. <laughs> Morrissey's first visits to South London were in the 70s. He became friends with James Maker through letter columns, I think it was in the NME. They sort of, and it was a time when, you know, they would print people's full addresses. And you'd get a little yeah. pen pal movement happening between uh, people who wrote in letters to the museums. People would sort of like write to them and support points he befriended James Maker who lived in I think can we read that it's full address it's from 1977 so I'm sure <laughs> actually the estate's been demolished so it's, it's definitely fine 91 Redlaw Way Bonamy Estate in Bermondsey and Morrissey visited him a lot down in Bermondsey and didn't James Maker go on to be some, he was in a band he was in a band yeah, yeah I was going to yeah. say yeah. so yeah. in the autobiography Morrissey talks a lot about the old Kent Roads the Elephant Castle hanging around in Bermondsey not mentioning your autobiography, but reading around the subject um, on Transpontine, actually, a wonderful uh, South London uh, blog. I don't know if you saw this article, but um, yeah, on Transpontine they they reference a letter that Morrissey wrote to someone else at the time while he was living uh, in Bermondsey. He stayed down there for a few months with James Wake and his family. He tells a story of seeing uh, a UFO 
on the balcony right. with James Maker. So, South London, when Morrissey saw a UFO. Have we got a blue plaque for that? We haven't, Steve, no, <laughs> as we haven't for the British flag pub either. <laughs> yeah, he describes the area, sort of Bermondsey Way. Well, he goes past the Civic Centre. He gets off the bus at the Civic Centre where Tommy Trinder fell from the rafters every Friday night and told it his own way to those unlucky people, which is quite good, isn't it? <laughs> but he describes it as, uh, it's the safest side of the tracks that are unsafe on both sides, a mishmash area that wisely manages to keep Peckham at bay with its distinctly enormous schoolgirls with fat tyre legs. So we traversed Clapham Common from the north side to the south and ended up at on Broomwood Road at St Thomas's Prep, formerly Walsingham Girls, location of the interesting drug video in 1989. It's always been a minor entry in the Morrissey discography for me, Rob, but you feel a bit more strongly. Do you want to tell us about the song? Yeah, I, I love the song. I think it's, I'd say it's my favourite ever song. Not the best, but certainly of all my, songs. Of all, yeah, it's my right. favourite. Wow. Yeah, I just love it. It's just so um, fun and uplifting, and it's just got a great sound. And it was that period that that song comes from is my favourite Morrissey period. You know, I think it was an interesting time because obviously the Smiths had split. Was it eighty eight, eighty seven, eighty eight? Uh, yeah, that 1987. 87, yeah. yeah. And then they were kind of like a lot of people were saying, well, Morrissey will be nothing without Johnny Marr, etc. And what was it, six, eight months later? Fever he released Fever Hay, which was charted higher than anything the Smiths had ever done, and the single Swayedhead and whatnot had charted higher as well. And then he'd worked with Stephen Street on that record and uh, then decided I want to do a couple of singles with Stephen Street as well. And then that's when Last of the Famous International Playboys and Interesting Drug came. And I think it was a really fruitful period. I mean, you look at it, anyone else who just left the security of that band and Johnny Marr and everything else, he would probably have a, a period where they were struggling a little bit. He just got together with Stephen Street. He was not a great... He wasn't known as a songwriter at that time at all. He was a producer. Uh, and together they produced, I think, one of you know Morrissey's greatest albums, Viva Hay, and then the two subsequent singles, I think, were fantastic. An interesting drug. Where did the chart about sit? It was top twenty, wasn't it? It was one of his top twenty entries. I think he had uh, a string of them. So yeah, no, I, I love it. Love the video. I love the song. I love the guitar. And of course, um, the ex Smiths members were on there as well, weren't they? Joyce and Rourke and Craig Gannon as well. So. Yeah. And similarly with the single before Last of the Famous International Playboys, mm. you've got the three former Smiths involved. Yeah. And another South London video. Yeah. We didn't visit the location, but um, it's not Morrissey, but the characters in the video were uh, lounging around on Bermondsey Street. Right, yeah, I mean, that was a good... I mean, that, you've got to look at that session that produced those two singles and the B-sides for those singles. That's one of his best little sessions he's ever done. But I remember Stephen Street got annoyed during that session because they booked that Wolverhampton gig which was Morrissey's first um, gig as a solo artist and uh, he had decided he was going to have Andy Rourke, Mike Joyce and uh, Craig Gannon play live with him at that show so they were turning that studio time into a bit of a rehearsal session and kind of pushing Stephen Street aside a little bit which had annoyed him somewhat but you look at what they produced it's, it's really surprising to me that after the success of Viva Hate and then them two singles that Morrissey never worked and never spoke to Stephen Street again it's just very typical again of what you would expect from Morrissey really draw a line and move on yeah it just seems to work in mysterious ways anybody else would have been thinking right 
I'm having a bit of success here. When people, going, yeah, no when, kit as much. Let's, let's, let's just cling on and grip on. He was like, well, now I'm, you know, I'm going to go and do some other things and work with other people. It's just a strange, you know. I don't know anybody else who would have done that, really. Last of the Famous International Playboys might be my favourite yeah. Morrissey solo so good. single. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Interesting drug, Rob. Do you want to talk about the video? About the video in terms of... Oh, what? You don't have to. No, no, I love the video. I mean, it's it's just it's got a very strong political message. I think it's delivered playfully, but at the same time, well, some of the blood and whatnot from the alley, that's not playful, but it is quite hard-hitting. But you know what I mean? It's, it's just a nice... Again, it's an example of Morrissey kind of using his art for a greater cause, and, of course, that just doesn't happen enough anymore, does it? And that's something he's always done. And whether you like Morrissey or not, I think the one thing that anybody would say about him is that he sort of sticks to his guns on issues and he has opinions. And he's not afraid to jeopardise his own sort of popularity within the music industry or with people in order to get those messages across. And I think Interesting Drugs a classic example. Who else would write a three-minute pop song that's a top 20 charter? and then produce a video that has, like, bludgeoned animals and whatnot in there. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing he's done. Was he excited to visit the location? I was really excited, actually. I didn't think I would be. And then as I came down the road and it came into view, and it was like, it was like the video coming to life, basically, wasn't it? You know, it was, I found that, but yeah, it was really exciting. Yeah, good choice, Jack. Well done. <laughs> I was just think um, the pigeon stands for pointing it out. Because we're struggling desperately to find where the where that school was. Yeah. See that the names change and stuff, but uh, I reckon James out of the picking stands nailed it for us. Introducing Morrissey yeah. compilation video. Yeah. Starts on um, is it Jerusalem plays, yeah. doesn't it? And it does the. I do like that. You know that yeah, song. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I remember the Falls version of it. I don't know. I remember the version that they, they used it in the opening ceremony of the Olympics, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really got me. I yeah, really, it's powerful. It it's is, powerful. yeah, it's great. The video opens with a guy wandering through London from Clapham Common North Side down Tenth Street. Uh, Lambeth Salt is like one of those, uh, be, uh, what do you call it? It's like a salt container. It just says Lambeth right, Salt on it. Right, yeah. Um, it goes past the Thomas and Beckett pub in um, Old Kent Road, which he mentions in the autobiography. But yeah, Clapham Common North Side, Rob. Mm. That's referenced in the song Mute Witness, isn't it? Which is off um, Kill Uncle album. Which, probably of all Morris's albums, is the one that's least adored, I would say. Um, but I actually really like it. I think it's quite interesting. He worked with Nevin, Mark Nevin, who I think was the guitarist in a band called Fairground Attraction, yeah. yeah. And there was a bit more piano-based things on there and whatnot, and um, I quite like it. And Mute Witness in particular, I just think is a cracking track. I mean, that line, 4am, Northside, Clapham Common, I just, I love it. And it translated very well live as well, and it was part of his set, um, you know, in, yes. in 91. Um, which was Morrissey's most successful period, and Mute Witness was a, a, a kind of big part of that whole set. Because in '90, well, I mean, no one ever talks about this. It's never out in the music, in, you know, press or anything. In '91, Morrissey was absolutely huge uh, in America, and he was selling out. He was breaking box office records in 
in America. I mean, he sold out Madison Square Garden, which is a 20,000 capacity quicker than U2 and Madonna. And then on the night of the actual gig, broke the merchandise record, which U2 had held for about five years. So they sold tickets quicker than anyone ever had and were selling more merchandise. And that was typical of that entire tour. Every single state he went to just exploded with excitement. They had to have, like, police bringing him, you know, closing roads down to get him in. He was having to exit out the back door every night. I don't know if you've seen the Dallas footage where uh, the end, uh, the last song is um, Every Day is Like Sunday and the whole stage gets stormed and the band have to put down their equipment and <laughs> run out the back. That was happening every single night and it culminated in this Madison Square Garden gig where just 20,000 tickets went in the space of a couple of hours and it was a, it was a record. And he was doing it with a no self-promotion at all. It just kind of happened really organically and really naturally. So... The music press in this country always like bands who do things organically and they always like British acts going to America and doing well. Morrissey did both of those things and got absolutely zero. Yeah, he talks in the autobiography a bit about it, doesn't he? He like does, being very he does. frustrated. He seems to know the exact attendance figures for every show and, <laughs> yeah. and chart, chart numbers yeah. and being frustrated at not getting recognition and sort of the management not capitalising on it, the record company not capitalising on it either. I can understand that. I mean, it's no exaggeration it was absolute pandemonium every single night I think he did 34 American dates came back to England and did a load more here and it was absolute chaos you know you couldn't get a ticket for love and money the people were flinging themselves on stage because his words mean so much that you don't just stand at a gig and passively you know people just wanted to be on the stage and just, I mean the Smiths weren't particularly huge in America and then a couple of years later, he's like absolutely blowing up out there, really naturally and really organically. And I just think it's a, an incredible story that really is untold, other than by himself, like Jack says in the book. You know, he really sort of, he's very proud of that period, I think. The final stop on the tour, Brixton Academy, where on the 12th of December 1986, the Smiths paid their final ever show which I was not aware of, was in South London before doing research for the show, just seeing where they played in South London. So what a thrill. It is a thrill. And, um, you know, the Smiths had a very, obviously a very short career, didn't they? But it was so um, fruitful at the same time. But the difference it made. Yeah, I mean, how many bands can say they were together sort of four years and produced four studio albums of that quality Pixies. I think there's very few <laughs> yeah I agree yeah. I think there's very few but having said that I am rare in the sense that I'm a Morrissey solo over the Smiths kind of guy as you are uh, Jack um, so yeah good riddance I'm glad they played here <laughs> It's a significant show, though. Uh, as, you know, obviously, being the last show, it's always going to have significance. But just in terms of the uh, the set list as well, it's the only time the Smiths ever play "Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others," "Shoplifters Will Unite," or "London Miserable Lie" live. Oh, wow! Because wow. like "Shoplifters" is the upcoming single, so they announce it's the upcoming single, and obviously are never around to play it again live. Well, but, this yeah. is the important thing as well, isn't it? That they, nobody knew this was the last no this is the thing yeah no. like on, on when they were together for months afterwards yeah yeah they finish on hand in glove and obviously the last lines that Morrissey sings on stage is oh you know never gonna 
uh, I'll probably never see buttons. you again. Yes. That's very poetic. Yeah, and like yeah. in the comment section on YouTube, people are like, he knew. Yeah. I know, because he wrote that song ages ago. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> and they're going to finish on it because it's world famous. He definitely didn't know because he was absolutely shocked when Johnny Marr said he was going to leave the band. And it, I mean, it is sad that Strange Ways Here We Come never got a live airing from the band. Obviously, Morris has played quite a number of tracks from Strange Ways in his shows, but it's not quite the same as, you know, the Smiths would have. Um, I'd like to have seen what the Smiths did with Strange Ways in a live format because there was. The sound was definitely developing at that stage and becoming bigger, if you like, and there was more elements to it. And it was, it was going in a certain direction that it hadn't gone before, and it would have been very interesting to see what their live sound for that album would have been. If you go on southfrontharcore.com, we'll put a link up to the final show. The whole lot is on YouTube. Thankfully, someone in the gallery was filming. Yeah. Uh, well worth watching, isn't it? Another remarkable moment uh, from the show. I don't know if you read about this at all. Uh, at the end of uh, Panic Morrissey obviously throughout the song is waving around a noose and then at the end the song throws it into the crowd I don't know if you know this you know who caught the noose? Uh, let me have a guess uh, Richie Edwards from the Man Street Preachers close Graham Coxon right. catches the noose that Morrissey throws into the crowd at the last show at Brixton Academy that's a really and still has it to this day well, it's sort of a symbolic baton yeah, well, it's, in- it's interesting because, you know, later on, obviously, well, only a couple of years later, uh, Graham Coxon and co at Goldsmiths form, you say form Blur, but they form Seymour. So 89 Blur form, Food Records are circling them and talking about giving them a record deal, but don't like the name Seymour. So over Christmas 89, New Year 1990, they agree to change the name to Blur and play their first gig as Blur in 1990, supporting Mega City 4 and The Cramps at... Brixton Academy. Brixton Academy. Their first gig as Blur was it? I suppose they played up Because they, exactly, they established themselves as Seymour, and it was just a name change, essentially. For like, so there is this almost like continuity of mm. Coxon catches noose. And, and also, you've also got the thing of, you know, Noel Gallagher was given guitars by Johnny Marr, isn't it? Yeah. So you've almost got like the Smiths handing on the batons to the, the next generation <laughs> of, of British They'd already played a couple of times in Brixton at the Brixton Ace, which is uh, what the electric was called then, the fridge, probably most best known as. Uh, they played the GLC Jobs for Change Festival in uh, 84 at uh, Jubilee Gardens. Uh, I didn't go into a full list of Morrissey's solo dates in South London because I thought that might get tired. Yeah, you'd get a, you'd oh, get a lot. They're probably not that many, are they? I don't know, mate. He's I saw it. him here, though. I saw him at Brixton Academy. Yeah. And it was yeah. great. My dad bought a ticket, but then, obviously, being Morrissey gig, it was cancelled. Yeah, it's happened re- to me a few times, yeah, that as well. They rescheduled it for uh, the Sabbath, so he gave me the ticket. And it was great. Nice. Really enjoyed it. Where did you have your cancellations, Rob? Well, I've had many a cancellation, but, but the ones that stick out the most, I did a trip to America in, I think it was 2007, maybe, and I had four tickets to four shows, and he cancelled all of them, um, so my trip was wasted, but then at the last minute he rearranged one in New Jersey at the Borgata uh, Casino and Hotel, so I... Um, I managed to catch him just before I left. But what was supposed to be a trip of, you know, multiple gigs turned out to just be one. And it was probably the worst. I've seen Morrissey live 20-something times, you know, 20-odd times, and that was probably the worst. So, yeah, that trip didn't work out quite the way it was intended. Unlike today's... (laughs) 
unlike today's trip, yeah. yeah. Rob, thanks for coming, man. It was no lovely problem. to have you. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed all the food and drink we laid on. Yeah, yeah. really appreciate you asking me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you've enjoyed your time in South London? I've loved it. Yeah. Home of the brash, outrageous and free. free. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can follow Rob on Twitter at, what's the best one, Rob? At Rob Pollard underscore. Yeah, Steve's at Vent Wales. I'm at Yids. We're at SLHC for the show. Thanks for listening. Don't leave us in the dark. <laughs> 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 <laughs>